1 Samuel 24, if you're new with us, uh, we have been marching through the life of David uh, and just gleaning some real solid biblical wisdom uh, from the life of David. In fact, if you were to say, uh, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, if you're here and you'd say, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, uh, you're probably familiar with David. He's one of the more popular characters of the Bible and for sure in world history is God is using him to usher the, uh, the people of God into their golden age. I won't read the whole chapter to you, just the opening seven verses. Uh, Lift up uh, some thoughts here and we can go about the day. Here we go. 1 Samuel 24, beginning verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. We'll have fun with that phrase. Hebrew's just so rich there. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord God. Uh, Thank you, Father, that you use uh, every portion of the scriptures to speak to us, Lord God. God, we need to to hear from you uh, in this scene inside of a cave with two anointed kings, Lord God. There's the question, what in the world does this have to do with how we live our lives today? So make make that clear to us. Make that plain to us, Lord God. And Lord God, the gospel is in this cave. So show us the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ and how that revolutionizes our lives, how that gives us hope even in the midst of life's proverbial dark moments in caves. God, I see that in, Lord God, that I'm available to you. I, um, I don't have the ability to change anyone's life. Uh, that's why I need a Savior. We need a Savior. Uh, and yet, Lord God, would you take Would you take these next couple of moments, these few pieces of fish, these few loaves of bread, would you put your hands on them, would you multiply them, and would you feed your people? Do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if we have any 76ers fans here, uh, but if you're a 76er fan, uh, up until the last couple of years, you were well acquainted with losing. Uh, by the way, uh, there's a guy who goes to the Blue Ridge campus, and I give him my sermon every week just to speak into it. And uh, this guy, you should know, um, went to Duke, and he said, well, it'd be better if you just used an NC State analogy on losing. Uh, I won't tell you this guy's name, uh, but his initials are Chris Papalardo. Um <laughs> 
So anyways, uh, here to serve, Chris, here to serve. Uh, but until the last couple of years, man, the 76ers were just in a rough stretch of losing. And um, if, if there's any city in America where um, you don't want to be in a rough stretch of losing, it's the city of brotherly love. By the way, if ever there was a city that was misnamed, it's that. Because uh, know how much time you spent in Philly, but ain't too much love there. So here they are, just this long track record of losing. The fans are just booing everything, man. They're going nuts. They're going crazy. Uh, they're wanting to get rid of everybody. And in the middle of this losing stretch, um, the ownership and management just kind of released kind of a, a, a three-word statement that kind of went viral and uh, really just kind of turned things around. Uh, ownership just said in the midst of all the losing, hey, listen, trust the process. Trust the process. It was their way of saying, listen, we're not oblivious to this. We see what's going on. We see what's happening. We, we see all the losing. Not only do we see it, but we actually have a plan. And wouldn't you know it, over the next couple of years, all that stuff just kind of came to fruition. Um, losing seasons turned into number one draft picks. Enough of those number one draft picks. A skillful team started to emerge. And what you started to see was kind of the genius behind this whole idea of trust the process, what looked like losing turned into winning. I, in some ways, I actually think that's a, that's a good statement for the life of David and for the book of 1 Samuel. All right, we're going to encounter David. He's in a cave. He's got 600 men with him. Saul shows up with 3,000. It looks like a typical 76er season. He's outnumbered. Looks like, man, the odds are stacked against him. You just want to go, man, trust the process. There is a God, a God who's overseeing the whole thing. What looks like losing is actually going to turn into winning. And I need you to understand this when we come to 1 Samuel, because 1 Samuel really keys in on three leaders. There's Samuel, who, who represents the last of the judges. His name literally means God hears. There's Saul, who will be the first king of Israel, a, a king, and we'll talk some about this, who is, um, who is selected not because of the perfect will of God, but because of the demands of the people. And then there's, there's David, a, a man anointed and selected by, by God. I want you to understand that book of 1 Samuel, it's in a section of Scripture called, called the historical genre of Scripture. But the book of 1 Samuel, if you just read it as history, if you just read it kind of as gleaning some good nuggets in which you've learned some things about the last judge of Israel, Samuel, and the first two kings of, of, of the monarchy of, of Israel, if that's all you come away with, man, you're, you're going to miss the whole point. See, scholars tell us that 1 Samuel is actually written... Uh, at the darkest moment in Israel's collective history up until that, that, that point. Uh, they're actually, when 1 Samuel is written, it's, it's actually uh, written to the nation of Israel who's in this dark losing season known as the Babylonian exile. It's because after years of not listening to God, years of disobedience, that God raises up the Babylonians. They cart them off uh, to, to Babylon. If you want to read more about how Israel felt during this time, I implore you to read Psalm 137. Uh, it says this, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and, and wept. How can we uh, sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They're emotionally overwhelmed, and God commissions 1 Samuel to be written. Why? 
because he wants to communicate to his people the peril of what happens when you live your life like Saul. Saul is a picture of self-reliance, independence, and pride. He refuses to rely on God. He's just bent on doing things his own way. I'm going to do life on my terms. Whatever I want to do, whatever seems right, that's me. On the other hand, there's David. David is a picture of, of God dependence. David is a picture not of self-reliance, but God-reliance. Unlike Saul, who's bent on living life uh, from a posture of pride, David lives life from a posture of humility. The, the contrast, the, the juxtapositions couldn't be more clear. This isn't just historical tidbits. It is God just laying bare. There's Saul, there's David. Choose David. In fact, I think the message of 1 Samuel actually isn't trust the process. It's trust God and embrace the process. What God is doing is he's, he's taking David on a journey where he's killing all of the vestiges of Saul, his proverbial Saul, this sense of arrogance and pride in him, and he's taking him through a process of, of brokenness. And the message is when we trust God, we will embrace the process. Now, now that brings up a good question. What is the process? I want you to hear me this morning, and I'm going to unpack this to you. Um, I'm, I'm going to explain. I'm going to show you all of this in the Bible. But God has an agenda for our lives. He, he wants to take us from independence to dependence on him. He wants to take us from self-reliance to reliance on him. I, I guess what I'm saying is, it, all of us right now, we, we, we have two individuals vying for the throne of our lives, and that's Saul and David. Saul and David aren't just on the pages of Scripture. They do daily battle for the throne of our lives. And here's the process. I want you to look at it with me here on the screen. Number one, God's goal is he wants to move us again from self-reliance, that's Saul, to God-reliance. How does he do this? He allows suffering in our lives. Listen, uh, we have no control over suffering. So you don't need to pray for it. You don't need to ask for it. Uh, I know that's kind of what you were thinking. Uh, suffering, you just keep inhaling and exhaling and problems just kind of come into our lives. We have no control over it. But step number three, the whole process hinges on this. We have no control over suffering. We do have all the control in the world as it relates to how we will respond. Our, our response. And here in our text, we're going to see David responding in trust and in patience. When we respond redemptively to suffering, there is, there is what we would see uh, known as redemptive breaking. And, and, and once we're broken, now we're ready to be released and poured out in blessing. So again, I'll say this several times, 1 Samuel 16, David's anointed as king, but it's not until 15 years later, 2 Samuel 5, that he sits on the throne. In that 15-year period, there's a process. That's just not David counting time, 
God is doing something. He's working his divine plan in David's life. Let me just go ahead and say this right now. No, I'll, I'll, I'll hold on. I don't want to give my, my thunder away. But God is up to something. He's up to something in David's life. He's working, he's working his process. There's a woman in modern church history, a woman that, that I respect greatly. Maybe some of you have heard of her. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is her name. Um, in her late teens, uh, in fact, in the late 60s, she is a picture of health and strength and vitality. Um, and then all of a sudden, she gets into a diving accident, becomes a quadriplegic. In fact, just a few years ago, um, she's one of a handful uh, to have the dubious distinction of celebrating 50-plus years in a wheelchair. Since being bound to that wheelchair, um, she has been diagnosed recently with cancer. She's got scoliosis. Oh, she is also a follower of Jesus Christ. So here she is in her own proverbial cave. Here she is going through suffering, but she acknowledges that God is up to something, that there is a process, that God is working in her life. Look at these words that she says with me on the screen. This is what she says. It's a very it's very hard to go on. I mean, privately, I've wondered, gee, Lord, is this cancer my ticket to heaven? Because uh, I sure am tired of sitting in a wheelchair, and my body is aching, and I'm so weary. Suffering keeps knocking me off my pedestal of pride. My displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down the road of Calvary where I die to the sins Jesus died for. Sure, I have a long way to go before I am whom God destined me to be in glory, but thankfully, my paralysis keeps pushing me to strive to reach for that heavenly prize. Wow. She's not sitting there in that wheelchair just bitter at life. It's allowing her to, to just lean in and say these things. She understands that there's a purpose to that 50-plus year wheelchair. There's a purpose to that cancer. There's a purpose to that scoliosis, and, and let's not sanitize her. Of course she would, she, wouldn't, she would wish things would work out differently. Of course she wants healing. But I've had the chance of meeting her, and i got to tell you, I've heard her sing. I've seen the joy. And then I look at her now. She's got a wonderful ministry, Johnny and Friends which is a ministry to our friends in the disabled community. And they're hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being encouraged and strengthened uh, in their life and cared for with compassion and empathy. She's being given as a vehicle of blessing because she's allowed God to work his process in and through her life. And that's some of you right now. Some of you right now, you've come into here, just like we're meeting David in this cave, you're in your own cave. I just prayed with a couple at the end of our first service and cancer diagnosis, cave. 
Others of you, there's some kind of relational betrayal you're dealing with. It's a bit of a cave. Others of you, maybe it's an infertility journey. Maybe it's just career frustrations, setbacks, the pink slip. Maybe some of you are just dealing with, man, it sounds minor, but it's a real thing to you, so it's not. It's, man, I'm just incredibly homesick. I feel incredibly lonely right now. And, and that's David, away from home. And it just, these things aren't, aren't random. So God is not just with us on the mountaintops. God's with us in the valleys. In fact, I want you to understand, food doesn't grow on mountaintops. The, the best food is in the valleys. He's up to something. There's a process that he's working. For David, it's a 15-year process. As we come to the book of 1 Samuel, let, let me just kind of zoom out and just kind of give you some more context what's happening here. Uh, 1 Samuel again begins with Samuel, who's the last of the judges. Uh, so historically, it begins with the time period of the judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that it ends on a very ominous note. It says there, at the, uh, one, the last verse of the book of Judges, that each person did what was right in their own eyes. Boy, if ever there was a verse for America. Each person. Is doing what is right in their own eyes. And they don't mean that as a compliment. Utter moral chaos. God then raises up Samuel and things get worse. First Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant, which is indicative of the presence of God. That's how the people of God saw it. The Ark of the Covenant is taken, and not just taken, but taken by their arch rivals. The Philistines take it. And so, man, the message is clear God, it seems, has abandoned us. Now, you would think this would bring in national repentance uh, long term. That's not what happens. A couple chapters later, the people demand a king. Give us a king. We're looking around. We kind of got this bootleg person. You know, we're, we're doing, the, doing the judges thing. We don't want judges anymore. We want a king. Give us a king. And Samuel, who's their leader, is heartbroken. He cries out to God, and God says, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, ultimately. They're, they're rejecting me. They want a king. Give Give them a king, and this king will bring utter chaos into their lives. Let me just stop right here and come to your mess, uh, come to your house real quick. I'm going to come to your living room, put my feet up on your coffee table. Uh, be careful what you ask God for. I don't think we talk about this enough, but one of the worst things God could ever do to you is to give you everything you want. One of the cruelest things God could ever do is to give you everything you ask for. My wife has a dog. See what I did there? I'll say it again. My wife has a dog. Um, little dog named Harley. Uh, every time we sit down to eat chocolate, Harley comes over, tongue hanging out, salivating, panting. It's, it's her way of saying in dog speak, give me the chocolate. Now, if I gave Harley the chocolate, which I won't tell you if I've wanted to or not. That's between me and the Lord. But if I gave Harley the chocolate, you would not look at me and think I was a kind person. But I'm saying that's what the dog is asking for. That's what the dog wants. In fact, 
you would actually say what makes me kind is not giving what that dog wants. Some of you could be very angry at God because you've been asking for things and praying for things and begging God for things, and at minimum, it's a delay, if not a flat-out denial. Don't assume God is being mean. He could actually be good and kind. The worst thing God could ever do to you is to give you a gift that you do not have the character infrastructure to handle. You want a king? Boom. You got it. That's your chocolate. And what happens? Yeah, it starts out okay. Chapters 10 and 11 is as good as, good as it gets. He's anointed king, chapter 11. Um, he leads the people of God out against the Ammonites. They slaughter the Ammonites, and then the rest is downhill. <laughs> refuses to wait on God, refuses to wait on Samuel, doing things his own way. Uh, he's going to be independent. I've got this figured out. I don't need God. I can handle it on my own. I, I, will, I will even consult with the witch. I will figure it out. What's the result? Chaos and destruction and evil and death. And I want you to understand Saul is not just on the pages of Scripture, but Saul is in here in our own hearts. Gene Edwards wrote a wonderful book I read some years ago called Three Kings. Listen to what he says with me. It's on the screen. He writes, Saul is in your bloodstream, in the marrow of your bones. He, he makes up the very flesh and muscle of your heart. He is mixed into your soul. He inhabits the nuclei of your atoms. King Saul is one with you. Really? I think this is what Paul is getting to when he writes the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5. No, he doesn't use the word Saul, but he uses a synonym for Saul. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out. One translation says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He says we all have a King Saul. In New Testament speak, it's called the flesh. By the way, flesh is not flesh and bones, but flesh is that fallen part of who we are. That's why you don't have to teach a, a kid to be selfish. That's why you don't have to teach a kid to lie. We just come into this world incredibly cute narcissists. (laughs) I just prayed with a pregnant woman at the end of first service. I'm having her first child. I'm like, oh, God bless you. You're going to give birth to just a selfish little Saul. I didn't say that to her. I thought it. But I I want you to understand that we all have an inner Saul who says, I want what I want. And here's what I want you to understand. If you read Saul in 1 Samuel, he's not the picture of joy. (laughs) He's not the picture of happiness. There's darkness and sadness and melancholy. I, I just think that's indicative. I've never met a joyful Saul. I've never met a joyful adulterer. 
I've never sat with someone in my office who's cheating on their spouse, and they're just going, man, this is awesome. I've been cheating on my spouse for six months. Life is great. I've never found a joyful person who's just engaged in hookup culture. Moments of euphoria, yeah, but they're not joyful. And that could be some of you. You're, you're here today, and, and there, there's no condemnation. But I think the very fact that you're here today tells you something's missing. I've never met a joyful, greedy person who just spends money the way they want to all the time. On the flip side is David. David comes and God picks him and he's the king and he's living in dependence on God. We find him praying and and seeking God. And we also find him rejoicing and dancing and singing and worshiping the picture of joy. Here's what I want you to understand. There's, when we come to 1 Samuel 24, there's two kings in this cave. Both are anointed. And do you know what we call two kings in the same territory? We call that war. Notice again what Paul says, Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, that's Saul, are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit, that's David, are against the flesh. I love it. These two are opposed to each other. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, every single day there's a war going on for who is going to sit on the throne of your life. Who's going to call the shots? There's, there's, there's just a war there. And the message of 1 Samuel is, you, you want joy? Joy is when the son of David, Jesus, is calling the shots. That's joy. That's joy. So now we come to 1 Samuel 24. It's just in a section here. Again, 1 Samuel 16, David's anointed. 1 Samuel 17. Um, here he is. He's about 13 years of age. He's just taken down Goliath. First Samuel 18, things are now going to get really dark. It's going to be the, kind of the first time we're going to see Saul try to kill David. I think it's interesting at the start of this really dark period that begins in 1 Samuel 18, God says, let me give you a friend. Like, life's going to get really bad for you for the next 15 years. You need a friend, so let me just drop Jonathan in your life. They make a covenant, 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 20. At the end of 1 Samuel 20, that's when David officially says, I'm out of here. It's just not safe for me to hang around here anymore. i got to live life on the run. At the end of 1 Samuel 20, what happens? Jonathan renews his covenant of friendship with David. I just love it. I just think one of the things God is saying is uh, you have to have friends in your life. Friends are not just kind of electives in the curriculum of life. They're, they're, they're core. Now we come to chapter 24, and, and here's David. He's in this cave. He's on the run. He's got 600 men with him. He's outnumbered five to one by the men of Saul's army. 
and he's here, and I want you to write down Psalm 57. I think this is a good passage for you to sit in. The reason why I want you to write down Psalm 57 is many scholars tell us Psalm 57 is actually a psalm uh, that David writes while in this cave in 1 Samuel 24. So if you want to know what's going on in David's soul, Psalm 57, verse 4, look at it with me. David says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Do you hear the fatigue? Tired. Worn out. I'm, I'm looking around. I'm, I'm outnumbered. This seems it for me. I, I, I'm hearing fear here. Ever been there? Ever just get into those moments in life? It just, it's just, this feels too much. This is overwhelming. I've been there. I've been there plenty of times in my life. It's hard. What's going on here? God in his sovereignty, 1 Samuel 16, you're anointed as king, but you're not ready. That's going to happen 15 years later, 2 Samuel 5. Hey, David, before you get to your castle, you got to stop by some caves. Because here's what you need to understand. God's prerequisite for usefulness is not giftedness, but brokenness. I like eggs. You can do a lot with eggs. Scramble them, fry them, make an omelet out of them, make cakes out of them. But you can't do nothing with egg until you first break it. I'm looking out. A lot of young people in here full of ambition, get after itness, praise God, dream, push. But the scariest person in the world is the gifted person who hadn't had their heart broken. When I look at abusive leaders, oftentimes they're phenomenally charismatic, gifted people who never really redemptively responded to suffering and allowed God to break them. And when you don't allow God to break you, you end up breaking others. Caves are necessary classrooms in the journey of life. A friend of mine, Charlie, he says it this way. 
God is more concerned about our process than our position. So here's David. He's in this cave. He's wearied. He's fatigued. He's isolated, lonely. What in the world, God, are you doing? And then all of a sudden, our text tells us, Saul shows up, 3,000 individuals, that's five to one ratio, outnumbered David. I, 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 I think Saul in his mind is like, we're going to make this quick work, man. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem, get, get on to the real business at hand. I'm just going to blow this guy out the way. But hey, guys, but before I unleash you, I got to go to the bathroom. Text says he has to go and, and relieve himself. I, I love it. One translation says he goes to cover his feet. Now, this is, this is Hebrew for going number two. Dropping the kids off at the pool. Since he's a king, we might call this a royal flush. Oh, I love you, man. I need to take you on the road with me. So here he is, incredibly vulnerable. And David's men are like, this is our chance. Verse 6, look at it with me. David, this is our chance. Take your knife, cut his throat, assume the position of, as king, and to the shock and disappointment of his men, it says, verse 6, he said to his men, the Lord, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Whenever you read the Bible, pay special attention to the names of God. Whenever you come across the name Lord in all caps, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the personal name for God. It wasn't to, to, to the Israelites, Yahweh wasn't just the transcendent God, although he is that. It's, it's, the, it's the personal. It's, it's the God who, who personally walks with me, who, 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 who pays my bills, who puts food on the table, clothes on my back. That's, that's Yahweh. He's, he's with me. It's, that's the name. It's the name David uses. Come on, David, this is your chance. You can, you can kill him. David's like, no, no, no. The Lord, Yahweh, here he is in a cave. So Yahweh isn't just out there in the sunlight. He's actually here with me. I think somebody needs to hear that. God's just not with you in the sunshine. And I think we have to take that thought captive when the enemy says, God doesn't care, where is God, how can you go through this, how could God allow, he's with you. So what, what, what is David doing here? He's inviting this personal God in and he's saying, listen, I trust him. I trust him. Sure, I wish I was in Jerusalem on the throne, but I'm in this, I, I trust him. It's college football season. If you've ever watched a halftime show, 
at the college football game, no doubt you've seen the marching band. Marching band comes out on the direction of the conductor. They're playing wonderful music. No doubt they're playing their team's fight song. It's great. But oftentimes when we're sitting up in the stands, we, we see something else. We're not just hearing the music, but under the direction of the conductor, they're moving in formation in, in, in such a way that they're, they're, they're forming words. Maybe they're making the initials of the, of the school. I mean, we see this, but if you're the musician, you don't see what you're making. You're too close to it. Your, your only commitment is just doing what the conductor's telling you to do. Isn't that the problem with life? I mean, we can appreciate David because we're up in the stands. We're not in the cave. Like, like we're not feeling like this is a cliffhanger for many of us who grew up going to church. We're, hey, here's what we want to tell David. Hey, David, things work out. Calm down. Trust God. Things work out. But now we don't have that same perspective on our lives when we're in the cave. Why is that? Because we're too close to it. But God is up in the stands, and you know what he's saying? Hey, Romans 8, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. I'm making a beautiful letter. I'm making a beautiful pattern out of you marching to the beat and instructions of me, the conductor. Now, are you going to trust me or not? I know that breakup's hard. You just knew they were the one. You're, you're in your cave of disappointment. But are you going to follow me, the conductor? Are you going to trust me or not? What else do we see as we round third and head for home? Look at verse 15. May the Lord, this is David talking to me, the Lord therefore, <laughs> he's talking to Saul. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He's like, hey man, I, I, I could have got you. But I'm not going to take matters in my own hand. I'm going to let God do this. You know what we call that? We call that patience. Patience is the refusal to, to manipulate or manage outcomes. I'm not going to manipulate this thing. I'm not going to hotwire this thing. God's the judge. God's in charge. Whenever he sees fit is when he sees fit. I'm going to be patient. And, and, and I love this. How does this story end? This is not a fairy tale. The story ends with Saul going back to Jerusalem, where David should be, and with David going back on the run as a fugitive, which means the story ends and his situation hadn't changed. And this is reality TV. And what does David say, say to Saul? Hey, why are you pursuing me a dog and a flea? He says, I'm not even just a dog. I'm the flea on the dog. What do we call that? We call that humility. 
And I think God's peering over the balcony of heaven and going, you're starting to get it. See, here's what I think David's getting. God is more obsessed with changing me than with changing my circumstances. God is more obsessed with changing you than with changing your circumstances. Some of us are praying the wrong prayers. Change my circumstance, change my circumstance, change my circumstance. When we should be praying, God, whatever you need to do in me, in this cave, do it. One of the worst things that can ever happen to a to an oyster is to have lodged in its shells a little tiny grain of sand. Most of the times this oyster can expel this grain of sand, but there are those rare occasions where tries this oyster may, it just can't get rid of it. It's irritated and frustrated and exacerbated. To quote that great 90s theologian, it feels like it's about to lose its mind up in here, up in here. But it's at this moment where this oyster goes, well, if I can't change my circumstance, I might as well get the most out of it. And so what does it do? It finds this grain of sand and starts to coat it over and over again with a liquid substance that, that when it hardens, your grandmother pays top dollar for a pearl. Next time you see grandma put on that string of pearls, remind her she's literally wearing someone's bad day. And yet if there was no irritation, no frustration, no exacerbation, if there were no caves, there would be no pearls. God wants so much more from your life than your happiness. He wants his glory. And his glory happens when we walk in humble dependence on him. God, you got it. Whatever you want to do, I'm yours. My yes is on the table. Second Samuel chapter 7, two chapters after David is anointed king and he sits on the throne. God shows up to David. He says, hey, David, I'm going to make you a promise. He says, after all the caves, after bawling his eyes out, I'm going to make you a promise. Your kingdom shall last forever. How will this be? It's called the Davidic covenant. How will this be? Answer in his lineage will come another king. His name is Jesus. Like David, Jesus comes into this world where he is pursued by an ungodly king. And like David, even though Jesus had the opportunity to use worldly power to thwart this king, he literally said, do you not think I can call legions of angels at any given point and this thing is over just like that? Or when one of his followers takes out a sword and cuts off uh, one of the enemy's ears, Jesus says, don't do that. Put the sword away. Heals the man. He refused to use worldly power. 
But unlike David, this ungodly king killed him. But praise God, that's not how the story ends. Three days later, Jesus, the son of David, conquers the grave with all power in his hands. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he came for all of us Saul's. We all came into this world, Saul. Bent on our own way of doing life. Refusing to listen. Maybe that's you today. Maybe someone is here today and you are in church. And listen, I don't even need to give you much Bible. You're here today because you know in your heart of hearts, Saul is not the path to long-term joy and fulfillment. You know that. Jesus, the son of David, says, I am. That's why David would say in Psalm 16, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. So some of you, your first step on your pathway from Saul to David is just simply surrendering your life and saying, God, I am here. I'm frustrated. I'm at the end of myself. I embrace your gospel in just a few moments. Me and other leaders will be down front, and we'd love to pray with you as you begin this journey as a first-time follower of Jesus. But there's others of you, you're a follower of Jesus, and Saul has been running up the score in your life. You've been living life according to the flesh. You're saved. You're just not acting like it. God says, will you relinquish control? Will you surrender to the power of my spirit? Would you receive the abundant life that I'm here for you? So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for life's caves. Thank you, Lord God, for those moments when suffering comes knocking on our doorsteps. Yes, Lord God, I I do pray for healing from cancer. I I do pray, Lord God, that that you would mend those relationships. I, I do pray and ask you for these things, Lord God, but in the meantime, in between time, Lord God, may we actively trust you. May we actively wait on you. Because more than changing our circumstances, you want to change us. Change us into your image. Jesus, the son of David. It's in his name we pray.